Hello and welcome to Hillcrest To Go. I'm your host, John Parker. Today, Dr. Tom Goodman shares a message titled, A Life of Fulfillment. Now, an important message from Dr. Tom Goodman. Well, this is an opportunity for us to continue to study God's Word, specifically in the place of Colossians. We started several weeks ago, a verse-by-verse, section-by-section look at Paul's letter to the Christians who lived in the ancient city of Colossae. And today we're going to be, and actually for the next few weeks, we're going to be in the same passage, verses 9 through 15 of Colossians chapter 2, which reads, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. God bless the reading of his word. I want to talk with you today about the environment. And I'm not talking about the physical environment, although creation care is an important subject for us to look at as Christians. But I want to talk about a different kind of environment. Let's call it the spiritual environment. You live in the physical environment. You eat the food of this planet. You drink the water of this planet. You breathe the air of this planet. You're held to the ground because of the gravity of this planet. But you also live in a spiritual environment. You, you live with the memory of regrets. You're pulled down by the gravity of self-doubts. You breathe in the toxic air of different fears, real and imagined. But what if I told you that you didn't have to live in that spiritual environment, that there was another spiritual environment that could be your place of occupation? The Bible tells us about this spiritual environment with a little two-word phrase. It is a preposition followed by a proper title, in Christ. In Christ. We are in Jesus just as substantively as we are in the physical environment around us. So now what exactly does it mean to live in Christ? Did you know that that little phrase and variations of that phrase show up 164 times in the 27 books of the New Testament. In Christ, through Christ, into Christ Jesus, in Him, and so on, 164 times. In 1898, A.T. Pearson wrote a book called In Christ Jesus, and the book was simply an exposition of every place where that phrase or variations of that phrase show up. Speaking of the frequent use of that little phrase, Pearson wrote, such repetition and variety must have some intense meaning. When in the Word of God a phrase like this occurs so often and with such manifold applications, it cannot be a matter of accident. There is a deep design. 
God's Spirit is bringing a truth of the highest importance before us, repeating for the sake of emphasis, compelling even the careless reader to give heed as to some vital teaching. Another man named James Stewart wrote a book called A Man in Christ. And he said this, We tend to forget that there is no other proper name that could intelligibly stand after and be governed by the word in. We do not speak, he says, of being in St. Francis or in John Wesley. But we do speak about being in Christ Jesus. And the language started with Jesus himself. We read this in John chapter 15, verse 4. Jesus said, live in me. Make your home in me just as I do in you. And then he used the image of a grapevine in the same way. He said, in the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only by being joined to the vine, you can't bear fruit unless you are joined with me. So it was Jesus who got all this started by saying, using the language, live in me. And then the rest of the apostles, especially the apostle Paul, took this and he ran with it and he and he went deeper with it than anybody had ever gone before now could it be that we are missing something important if we ignore that phrase or if we take that phrase for granted you know we tend to call ourselves we like to use the title christian to refer to ourselves today if we're believers in jesus but you know how many times the word christian shows up in the bible three times over and over and over again, 164 times we are described, we are defined as people who are in Christ. Surely there's something important for, under, for us to understand about how the Bible describes us as people who are in Christ and Christ is in us. And so what I want us to do over not just this Sunday, but the next two Sundays is I want us to pause in our study through the letter to the Colossians and I want us to camp out in these seven verses, verses 9 through 15. In fact, I, I don't want us to just study them on Sunday, the next three Sundays. I, I, I'd also like you to read this passage every single day. These seven verses, verses 9 through 15, every single day for the next two weeks. So, on Monday, either in the morning, first thing, or last thing you do before you go to bed, read verses 9 through 15. And then on Tuesday, read verses 9 through 15. And then on Wednesday, read verses 9 through 15, and on and on it goes. I'm sure you've discovered this to be the case, that a lot of times when you read anything, but especially when you read the Bible just one time, you capture some of its meaning, but when you read it a second time, you capture even more. And even if you've read that passage nine times in a row, when you read it a tenth time, you discover something you didn't discover in the first nine times. And so what I'm encouraging you to do for the next 14 days on your own is to read these verses that I read out loud to you, verses 9 through 15 of Colossians chapter 2, and then come in here every Sunday with me and let's see what these verses have to say to us about living in Christ. Now, we're going to uh, see in these next three weeks that these seven verses tell us three things about life in Christ. A life in Christ means a life of fullness, a life of fellowship, and a life of freedom. And so this week we're going to see what these verses have to say to us about a life of fullness. Next week we're going to see what these verses have to say to us about a life of true fellowship. And then the third Sunday we're going to see what these verses have to say to us about a life of freedom living in Christ. Fullness, fellowship, 
freedom. That's our outline, God willing, for today and the next two Sundays. So, let's look first of all at the first two verses of this passage because they tell us something about fullness in Jesus. In fact, the word fullness shows up in both of the verses, verses 9 and 10. Look at them again. For in Christ Jesus, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought into fullness. I want you to circle the two places where the word fullness shows up. It shows up in verse 9, verse 10. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Verse 10, in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. So there are two remarkable statements here about entering into this environment called being in Christ. First of all, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That's literally, that's the first point of this message, which is literally the, the, the way the verse reads, verse 9 of Colossians chapter 2. It's an absolutely astonishing phrase. This means that everything you can say about God, you can say about Jesus. He wasn't just a man who was filled with the presence of God. He was the presence of God as he walked on this earth. The, the, the Apostle John said the same thing. John chapter 1 verse 1 and verse 14. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now there's a popular notion in our world today. You may have even picked it up if you took some introduction to religion, religion class in college that said that the idea of a divine Jesus didn't show up until 300 years after Jesus walked the earth. And it showed up in the middle of the fourth century with the Emperor Constantine. It's always that pesky Emperor Constantine that ruined things according to some people. And the way that the fable goes, I'm sorry, the way that the story goes is that the Emperor Constantine called all the bishops together and there they invented this understanding of a divine Jesus. Up until that time, Jesus was just sort of some itinerant preacher, kind of a hippie prophet that went around blessing children and smelling flowers. And, and then all of a sudden he was regarded as divine 300 years after his time on this earth. If, if that's the way you were taught, if that's the concept that you have in your head, what do you do with verse 9 of Colossians chapter 2? which was written 300 years before the Emperor Constantine. In fact, it was written within 25 years of the life of Jesus himself. And the Apostle Paul said, in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In his book, Paul and the Faithfulness of God, N.T. Wright said, the early Christians already by the time of Paul had articulated a belief in the divinity of Jesus far more powerfully and indeed more poetically than anyone has previously imagined. Christians didn't need to wait around until the fourth century to start talking about Jesus as divine. They'd already been talking about Jesus as divine for 300 years. Immediately after Jesus left the scene, when they began preaching, when they began writing about Jesus, they were already talking about him as the divine son of God. And they did so because this is what Jesus claimed for himself. In John chapter 14, verse 9, he said, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Now this truth is especially relevant for those of you who are trying to figure out if Christianity is for you. You're trying to decide if there's anything to this Jesus thing and this Christianity thing. Let's imagine that a bank sent you a letter telling you that somebody had died and you were the beneficiary of a million dollars 
in that person's will. Now, I'm not talking about you got an email from a sketchy person claiming to be the Nigerian widow, you know, of a, of a, of a Nigerian general. All of us have received things like that. I'm talking about a real letter from a legitimate bank, but the problem is you don't recognize the name of this person who made you his beneficiary. That man's name has never come up in any family reunions. You've never heard of this guy. And so your skeptical side would immediately assume that the bank made a mistake, that there really was somebody out there, or really is somebody out there who's gonna be the beneficiary of a million dollars, but it's probably not you. But that word probably makes you think. And maybe you think you probably ought to investigate this. I think you probably would. Now, isn't that a good parallel for what all of us ought to do with the claims of Jesus? Here is this man who came into the world not just to be a guide, not just to give us some intriguing parables, not just to give us a way to live. He came claiming to be the creator visiting his creation in person. And the very first people to follow him believed that too. And they wrote about it. And they stuck to their guns on this conviction, even to the point of persecution and death. Isn't this evidence worth considering? Isn't this evidence looking worth looking into? I like the encouragement from the late John Stott, an English pastor and popular author. He said, if you find it hard to believe in God, I strongly advise you to begin your search, not with philosophical questions about the existence and being of God, but with Jesus of Nazareth. If you read again the story of Jesus and read it as an honest and humble seeker, Jesus Christ is able to reveal himself to you and thus make God real to you. And when that happens, Jesus, who was and is the fullness of God, brings you into fullness. That's the second thing we discover in this passage. So in verse 9, we read that in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. But, it, but then that word fullness shows up again in verse 10. In Christ you have been brought to fullness. John and Marie Barnett were leading worship in their church as they did every Sunday. And after leading the congregation in one particular song, John, who was at the keyboard, continued to kind of uh, improvise and play a bit of a tune as it allowed people to sort of think through the things they had just been singing together as a congregation. And that's when Marie says that her eyes were closed and she was worshiping and thinking through what had just been sung and words came to her mind. And she began to spontaneously sing these words and much to her surprise the entire congregation started singing along with these words too. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe, your holy presence living in me. This is my daily bread. This is my daily bread, your very words spoken to me. And since then, millions of people and, and thousands of congregations have used that song in their worship music, including this congregation. Because what that song was trying to get across, what that song was trying to say, is that you and I are in Christ, and because of that, we're full, we're fulfilled, and we're satisfied. Why is it important for us to know that Jesus brings us to fullness? It's because knowing that can get us out of the trouble we get ourselves into. We get ourselves in trouble for two things, by going after the wrong things, or by taking the right things and putting them in the wrong place. 
Very simply, that is a theology of sin that you can write down and inside of 30 seconds you get three years of seminary right there. This is what sin is. It's doing the wrong things or taking the right things and putting them in the wrong place. And understanding the fullness that Christ brings you into can help you combat those two things that get us into trouble. So think of the wrong things that we choose and continue to choose. Pornography and addiction and one night stands and bitterness and unforgiveness. These things that we choose and we think they're going to satisfy us. They think that this is the way to solve life and, and, and they bring us nothing but heartbreak. The, the more likely we understand that Jesus brings us fullness, the less appealing these things will be to us. Let me illustrate this. There was a, a 19th century Russian priest named Father John of Kronstadt and most of his fellow clergymen of the time, they did not go out and visit in the neighborhoods immediately around their parish. And that was because of that season in, in Russian history, there was a lot of uh, uh, decay, there was a lot of debauchery morally. And uh, people were making all kinds of bad choices and because of that then, uh, it would be a, a vulnerable place for a priest to go. Somebody might exploit them, take advantage of them, beat them up. But Father John was different. He would go out into these areas and into the slums and maybe he would find somebody lying in the gutter, sleeping off whatever bad choices the guy had made the night before. And Father John would, would uh, get him seated up and he would take his hands and put them on either shoulder and he would say, this is beneath your dignity. You were made to house the fullness of God. And anywhere Father John went, according to the stories, revival broke out because he simply reminded people of who they were, whose they were, and what they were meant to be. They were meant to house the fullness of God. Well, guess what? You and I are meant to be uh, vehicles of the fullness of God as well. And if we understand that, all these lesser things, these cheaper things, these sinful things that we tend to do will become more and more unappealing to us. You know, we have a lot of smart people in this church, a lot of engineers. And if I gave each of you a beaker and said, you know, take all the air out of this beaker, some of you would come up with a complicated process to create a vacuum that could suck out and create negative and suck out all the air that's inside that beaker. But any mama in this place can tell you, because they've been to the school of mamaology, that the way you get air out of a beaker is fill it with water. And air is expelled, right? This is the same when it comes to your life and my life. If we want to empty our lives of that which is disappointing, that which is sinful, the best way to do it is just occupy our lives with the love and the fullness of Jesus. And if we do that, there's simply no room for all of these other poor choices. We need to realize then that the fullness that Christ brings us into can help us battle sin. Now, does that mean we don't need accountability groups? Of course, we still need self-discipline. We need to hold ourselves accountable to other people. We need to be involved in recovery groups and all the types of things that can help us along in this process of killing sin. But we need to recognize what an 18th century preacher once called the expulsive power of a new affection. What he meant was that when we are filled with our love for Jesus and filled with a recognition of Jesus' love for us, it, is, it has an expelling power that pushes out all that which is wrong and disappointing in our lives. But now I said that we get in trouble for two reasons, not just by doing the wrong things, but also by taking the right things and putting them in the wrong place. 
Anytime, anytime that you and I take good things like family and career and nation and wealth and place them at the center and we interpret that those things as the thing that will really bring us security and stability and, and happiness, guess what? You've displaced God. And the Bible calls that idolatry. And a lot of us are far more idolatrous than we realize. We realize somewhere along the way, usually in a crisis time, that this is the thing, the thing that's now being taken away. That was what we were counting on all along for our stability and self-worth and happiness. But again, if we recognize that we've been brought into fullness, we will be much less likely to be tempted to idolatry. I went to Sam's yesterday. I uh, filled my tank of gas. And after recovering from the dead faint, I, uh, I left Sam's. And guess what? I didn't go around looking for another place to fill my tank. My tank was full. After I've eaten a big meal, I don't go rummaging around the refrigerator, usually. <laughs> because I'm full and I don't need anything else to fill me. When you are filled with Christ's love for you and your love for Christ, you don't go looking around for anything else to give you a sense of fulfillment and worth and meaning. Your life is full. And so you don't fall into these idolatries that we so often succumb to. Now, how do we experience this fullness that can change our lives so much? Is there some new technique that we need to do that we're not doing now? Is there some new experience that we need to enter into that we haven't experienced yet? Is there some secret that only a really special teacher can communicate to us? Well, the Apostle Paul would say, none of the above, because it's yours already. Don't you notice the verb tense here in verse 10? He does not say you will be brought to fullness, or you might be brought to fullness, or you can be brought to fullness if the right steps are taken. He says you have been brought into fullness. It's yours already because you belong to Jesus. What we have to do then is we have to live like this is true. Let me illustrate this. I read about two newlyweds who were not very impressed with their honeymoon accommodations. Doug and Sylvia Whit's wedding reception went late into the night, and so when they were finally able to leave that reception, it was the wee hours of the morning when they got to their hotel. Now, they had booked it months earlier on the promise that this was this beautiful honeymoon suite. But when they walked in the door, they saw this tiny little room it had a table and some chairs around the table. It had a sofa. They found the sofa pulled out to a hide of bed. And so they spent this fitful night on this lumpy mattress with sprung springs. And the next day, uh, the newlywed husband went down to the front desk and gave the guy behind the desk a chewing out about these accommodations. And that's when the desk clerk said, you didn't open the door? And Doug went back to the room and he opened what he thought was a closet door. And inside was this spacious room and a king-size bed and a basket full of chocolates and fruits. It was theirs all along. They just didn't take advantage of it. Now the reality is that this is an illustration of the way a lot of us live the Christian life. We endure 
in this cramped little room of experience and we call this Christianity. When all along there is so much more to the Christian life and it is described by that little preposition and proper title in Christ. When you recognize that, you possess what is already yours. You experience it fully as you have never done before. So a life of fullness is already yours to experience. All you have to do is open the door. Keep that in mind as you go through this week. As you deal with the frustrations of raising small children. As you go through the frustrations of driving in Austin traffic. As you wait with some tension for the doctor to interpret the test results for you, understand that you are in Christ. And because you are in that environment, it makes all the difference in the world. This concludes our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next time as Dr. Goodman shares a message titled, Wanted, Dead, and Alive. I'm your host, John Parker, and this has been Hillcrest to Go. For more information, please contact us at hillcrest.church.